0: If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter two. We're gonna begin reading in verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, and whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. You would pray with me. Father God, I pray that through your spirit, you would open up your word to us and we would come to see this glorious thing that you have built called the church. And our appreciation of her would grow. And We would see her as the glorious gift that she is. Lord, I pray that my words would fall to the ground and blow away and not be remembered anymore. But Lord, may your words remain, and may they change us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. As a child, I grew up in church. I mean, I I literally, I grew up in church. I was there every Sunday morning, every Sunday evening, every Sunday. Wednesday night for church supper, for choir, for RAs. Um, anybody know what RAs stands for? Anybody? Royal Ambassadors, that's right, not Resident Assistant. Um, we were kind of the Christian Boy Scouts. Uh, and I, my mom was a church organist, my dad was a deacon, and so I was just always at church, and the church was my playground. So much as you see kids running around everywhere here after the service, you know, crawling under the pews, going uh, into the baptistry, different things like that, that would have been me, uh, only I was a lot worse. I share this story uh, a few years back, but uh, it's worth repeating because it tells a lot about who I am. But uh, my mom, you know, I said she was a church organist, and one Sunday at church, um, I'm sitting in the pew all by myself because my mom would sit by the organ. Um, And so she was always nervous and she had a right to be. Uh, And I was acting up. And so during the middle of the sermon, my mom just goes this, come here. And so I had to get up and I walked forward while the pastor's preaching and I had to come sit next to my mom on the floor by the organ. Uh, And so she thought problem was solved, uh, but she thought wrong. So I I just kind of worm my way behind the organ without her noticing because she was actually paying attention to the sermon. And I found a dime on the floor and I used the dime to undo the screws to the vent that was by the stage, pulled it off, crawled in underneath the stage, crawled all the way underneath to where the pastor was preaching. And I began tapping at his feet (laughs) while he was preaching. I was an absolute terror as a child, but once again, the church was my playground, but but I knew a church was more than just the building. Uh, I knew it was the people, and I can still vividly remember all the types of people that, that were part of First Baptist Sandy Springs, the church that I grew up in, and I remember we had the uh, the amen guy, you know, the, the older guy in the back who, whenever you needed a point, you, you needed that, that affirmation, you'd get the amen, you know, and... Uh, and I miss the Amen guy. All right, feel free to bring it back. Um, yeah, all God's people said. Amen. Was that that hard? All right, okay. Um, so yeah, I remember that guy. I remember the, the soprano, the off key soprano who couldn't sing, but but she thought she could, and uh, and she just she resonated louder than anybody else in the room. Or I can remember being in at the called conferences after church, always dreaded those, I mean, these conferences, but, but hearing the voices and things like, move the motion, be received, you know, you just, those things just, I can remember so vividly the people who made up the church, but I knew that the church was even more than the people, that yes, there was a building there, yes, there was the people there, but, but there was something more about the church, and I didn't really understand it as a child, and it's It's taken many years and a lot of study of scripture to finally really come to a better understanding of what is meant by the church. That's what Paul explains to us here. He paints a beautiful picture of the church. Beginning here in verse 19 of chapter 2 and then going all the way through chapter 3, Paul is going to talk about the glory of the church. Now when we think about church we typically think about all the things that a church does, all the things that happen at a church. Um, We we think of, once again, like the preaching, the the singing. Uh, We think of taking up an offering, the prayer times, people teaching the children's classes, people serving in the nursery. We think of all the activities that take place to make church happen. But this isn't how Paul describes church a matter of fact, I'm not sure if you've noticed this as we've been going through Ephesians, but Paul rarely ever describes anything we do. We're we're never doing any action. God is the one who is doing all of it. God is the one at work. And so in chapter 2, when Paul begins describing the things that happen in the church, he'll say things like this, God is our peace. God made us one. God broke down the dividing wall of hostility. God abolished the law. God creates one man instead of two. God makes peace. God reconciles us. God kills off hostility. God came and preached peace. Over and over again, God's the subject of the verb, not us. And in the text that we just read, when we, we do finally get in on the action, we're finally in on the action, we find that we're passive in it. We're passive in the actions. So in verse 20, we're the ones being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Verse 21, we are joined together. Verse 22, we are built together into the dwelling place of God. Over and over again, when Paul describes our salvation or he describes the church, it's never in terms of what we do, it's in terms of what God has done. This is God's work. The church is his gift, it's what he has built and he has given us. And this gift of the church is glorious. And so, what I want us to do this morning is to just simply look more as to who we are as the church. We often take time to look at who we are individually in Christ, but I want us to look at who we are corporately in Christ. So what Paul does to teach this to us is he gives us a mixture of metaphors. Paul loves to just like mash up metaphors together, and here he gives us several of them. Um, They're not just random metaphors. They're actually going to show a progression, but he he first describes us as citizens. Then he says we belong to the household of God. And then he goes on to say we're actually the home or the house or the temple of the Lord. And so the the progression is, is this. Each one of these images gets more and more intense when describing our relationship to God and our relationship to one another. So in relation to God, the progression moves like this. You used to be strangers from God. You didn't didn't know who he was, but, but then he made you citizens. Now you're living in the same city, and Jesus is your king. But then more than that, now he's invited you in to be part of his household. You're actually living under the same roof with Jesus, your family. And then even closer, you're not just living under the same roof you've actually become the house and God himself lives in you. Each metaphor more and more intense and showing our relationship to God. And it's the same with how we relate to one another. Once again, we used to be strangers, but now we're all citizens of the same city. We live in the same city together. Actually, we live in the same house together. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. Actually, more than that, We are so interlocked together, we become the house. And God, through his spirit, actually dwells in our midst. And what I want us to do is look at each of these three images and what they mean to us and how they progress us forward in that intimacy with both God and one another. So the first metaphor, image that Paul uses is that of citizenship. Um, Read again with me verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Now, Jeff talked some about this last week, and so I'm just going to speak briefly about this now. I'm not going to add many details. But what Paul's describing here is that we used to be strangers, we used to be immigrants, Living in a city, maybe with a temporary visa, but it was not our home. But now we are full-blown citizens of the kingdom of God. Meaning that as Christians, we've essentially become a new race of people. A new citizenship. It's the language that Peter uses. And we read that earlier um, when we opened our service reading from Peter. He calls us a chosen race or ethnos in which we are a new race of people. This is what Paul means in verse 15 when he says that there's no longer Jew or Gentile, but God has created in himself one new man instead of two. A new man has been created, a new race. And it's not that... The Gentiles are now becoming Jews, or the Jews are now becoming Gentiles. Now there's something entirely new that's been created. A new race of people, a new citizenship given. There's a new type of humanity that emerges. Can I just say that, boy, does that need to be proclaimed today? Today. That needs to be proclaimed today, that in a church, it does not matter your race. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter your nationality. It doesn't matter your ethnicity. The identifying marker in your life is that you are of Christ. That's all that matters is that you're of Christ. We are a new creation, a, a new race of people. Once again... It's not that one group is already established and welcomes another group in. Or this group over here welcomes that other group in. God does away with the groups and he creates an entire new people, a new ethnos, a new race. This is what Paul's talking about when he says that we are a new humanity and then later that we are all now citizens of a new, uh, a new nation, a new king- kingdom. First image, citizenship. Second is this. We're in the household. We're in the same household of God. So no no longer are we just in the same city. We're now living under the same roof. We're brothers and we're sisters in Christ, living in the same home with our Father. Now Paul says that this home that we've been given to live in Is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The apostles and the prophets, they're the ones who pointed us to Christ, who taught us about Christ, they're the ones who showed us the gospel, they're the ones who wrote scripture. And we need to remember that this is the foundation of the church. You can't change this foundation, you cannot improve on this foundation. As a church, you're not supposed to come up with some new culturally acceptable foundation for the church. I've told you this before, but hardly a week goes by that as a pastor, I'm not sent some email or some link to some article that talks about how the American church is declining and how we're moving into a post-Christian nation. And I'm always sent these articles to read by. It's really uplifting that I get these. <laughs> uh, and then usually with that is that link to you know, how you can preach better <laughs> or, uh, or, or usually a link to some webinar you could go to, some conference you could go to. Uh, and really it tells you how to fix this problem. And their solution is, is almost always this. Your church needs a makeover. It needs a makeover. You, you need a facelift, if you will, So you can become culturally relevant once again. And that's the fix. But but I would say that the church attendance has not been going away because the church needs a makeover. I'd say it's been going away because the church has given itself a makeover. It already has. And we see it over and over again how many churches have largely abandoned the gospel. They've largely already abandoned the authority of Scripture. Scripture. And they're trying to build a new foundation on whatever the cultural sands are. And they're forever shifting. And then they're wondering, why are people not coming? Why are their lives not being changed? Well, would you like to go under an ancient structure who keeps changing its foundation? No. What the church needs is to continually, continually proclaim Christ. I mean, here's the deal. When Jesus is preached, when he is proclaimed not just by me, but he is proclaimed by you, the real Jesus proclaimed, not some fictitious Jesus, you know, that we just kind of make up, but the, but the Jesus of the Bible, when he is proclaimed by us, what happens is some people will find him uh, attractional. They will be attracted to him. And also people will be repelled by him. Some people will find him Utterly beautiful and will come to him and other people will be repulsed by him. It's always been that way in the church. But if you preached a watered down, whatever culturally relevant Jesus you want to come up with, one that kind of looks just like you, just a little bit better, you put out there, the, church just kind of, or the world looks at you and just kind of goes, meh, meh. There's no reaction. And the thing is that a Jesus that looks just like us is a Jesus that can't save us. It leaves the world without hope. And so the church has to remember our foundation, and it's Christ, it's the apostles, it's the prophets. Jesus himself is the cornerstone, which means he's a rock on which everything else is built. And we never change this, ever. Let's look at the next metaphor. The next image that we have is that we become a holy temple. Look at verse 21 again. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So as we are joined to Christ, the cornerstone, as we're joined to him, we actually become joined to one another And then we grow into the temple of God, the place where God himself will dwell. Every Christian essentially becomes a stone, a stone that is locked together with every other Christian. And and you're built into this place where the spirit of God will come and dwell. Um, So now, once again, the image, you start off as strangers, then you're in the same city, then you're in the same home. And now you're actually being built into a home to which God will dwell. This is way more than just the intimacy of family. This is God in us. Now, did you know that the early church, the early church, the Romans didn't know how to classify them. So the Romans called them atheists. is that interesting? The early church, they were called atheists. Uh, they were also called cannibals because they regularly ate the body and the blood of somebody. Uh, They also were said to to, um, commit incest because they were calling everybody brothers and sisters, even those they were married to. Uh, So the Romans didn't know what to do with this whole new group. But then they called them atheists, which is really confusing. But the reason they were called atheists is because they didn't fit into any existing religious structure that they had. Everybody who worships the gods, they would have at least these three things. First, they would make sacrifices. Uh, Then they would at least have some form of priest. And then they would have a temple or places of worship. But the Christians didn't have that. The Christians didn't have any sacrifices because they believed Jesus was the only sacrifice, the once and for all sacrifice. They didn't have any priests because they believe every member of the church is a priest. Every member has direct access to God now through the blood of Jesus. They didn't have a temple where you had to go and do those things because they believed wherever the church gathered together, the church became the temple. The Roman Empire didn't know how to classify us. People still don't, but we become the temple of God. Now, this idea is not new. Paul's not writing about it here for the first time. You, You find this idea of us being the temple of God throughout the New Testament so you have 1 Corinthians 3, when Paul says, do you not know that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit? You have what we just read in 1 Peter chapter 2, that we are living stones being built up into a spiritual house. Um, so these ideas are, are percolating all throughout the New Testament. And in all of these places, except for one, all of these places except for 1 Corinthians 6, when when Paul or Peter, whoever, is saying that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that you is plural. He's saying you all, or if he was Southern, y'all, y'all are the temple of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 6, he says, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, and he's talking about individuals, and yes, that is true, that each one of us becomes a place where the Holy Spirit comes to dwell, but the great emphasis in the New Testament is not on our individual being temples, but collectively, we become the temple of God. God's glory comes to abide in us, just like it came to abide in the temple in the Old Testament. And so this is why you cannot have church in your car, listening to praise music, and then listening to a podcast. That's not church. You can't have church while just hiking on the trail. Just you and God. That's not church. It's when you gather together with other Christians. When you come together as these living stones, you become the temple of God, and then he blows in your midst. But hear me, it's more than just coming on a Sunday. It's more than just gathering here. He's not describing a heap of stones coming together, like a pile of stones. You know, all of you are living stones and you just kind of congregate together and there's this giant heap of stones, pile of stones, and he says, that's the temple. That's not the temple. That's not what he's describing here. Instead, there's, there's... we're being built. They're, they're interlocking stones. There's a design to this. We're being joined together. Verse 21, he says that we are joined together. Verse 22, he says we're being built together. And what he's describing is each one of us as stones. God is taking he's putting here. Then he's mortaring together your life with another. Then your life with another and another. And he's building us all together as interlocking stones, creating The temple. So once again, do you see the progression and intimacy now with one another? From strangers to now living in the same city, now living in the same house. Now you are so joined together, your lives are. It can only be described as you were built together into a house that now God himself dwells. Is that what church is to you? What Paul is saying here is that the closer you come to God, the closer you become to one another. And the closer you become to one another, the closer you become to God. You can't have one without the other. So being in close relationship to one another is absolutely necessary for you to know God. You cannot know God alone. Uh, I can't think of anybody who illustrates this better than C.S. Lewis, as in most always. But in his book, The Four Loves, he has a chapter in there, a little article in there on friendship um, that really just just illustrates this beautifully. Lewis was friends with a guy named Charles Williams and uh, Ronald Tolkien, who we know as J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, Together, they formed the Inklings. That was their little group name uh, for their friendship. Uh, And they they were just fantastic friends. They had deep friendship with one another. And then Charles died. And so it was just Ronald and uh, C.S. Lewis together now. And Lewis is reflecting on that, and he's trying to come up with some kind of silver lining from Charles' death. And he thought, well, I guess if there's any silver lining, it's this. At least I'll know Ronald better. I mean, at least I, I, now I have Ronald all to myself, and so our friendship will deepen, and I'll know him more. But then he found, as the weeks turned to months, that he actually didn't know Ronald better. He knew Ronald less. And so he was just thinking and pondering, why do I know Ronald less now that I have him all to myself? And so he wrote this. He said, in each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights other than my own to show all his facets and now that Charles is dead I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald and having him all to myself now that Charles is away I actually have less of Ronald. I I don't care how great you are or great you think you are, you are not large enough to know God by yourself. You're not large enough. You need to see how God is working in the lives of all these other people. So, so if you are not in, in a stage of suffering, you need to be able to look at somebody who is suffering and see how God is relating to them. And in seeing that rela- relationship, you actually learn more about God. Seeing how God relates to each one of us individually actually teaches us so much about who he is. And you cannot get that in a car through a podcast. We have to be in relationship with one another. When you're uh, alone and you're singing your heart out in your car, and that's great, and you're worshiping however you want to worship there, and and, and you're listening to the world's best sermon, hear this, you're not getting to know God more than you would apart from a relationship. You're knowing him less. He's called you to be a part of a church. Now, to be mortared to somebody, to be interlocked with somebody, means that you are so joined with them that their stability now depends upon you and your stability now depends upon them because the structure is being built. And what it means is that if, if you're absent, the structural inter- integrity is at stake. Your absence leaves a gap. It leaves a hole. People should feel it, and you should feel it. The whole structure should suffer when you are gone. Is this your view of the church? Or does the church more resemble to you a heaping pile of random stones thrown together in which you're always looking around and you're singing next to people you have no relationship with, your lives are not intertwined with, you're just gathered with on a Sunday? Is that what Paul has in mind for the church? Is that what Jesus gave his blood for? Next week, we are going to introduce 103 new members to our church, 103 new members. And what we do is something called covenant membership, in which we actually make a covenant together, that we're going to live life with each other, that we're going to encourage one another in the faith, that we're going to try to do all these different things together. But we actually think the nature of the church implies a covenant, that we do covenant with one another. And so there are all these one another's you're going to find in the Bible. There's over 70 one another's in the New Testament. Be kind to one another, love one another, be tender-hearted to one another, be patient with one another, gentle with one another, forgive one another. You're going to find all of these one another's. That implies an incredibly close relationship. You don't have to be patient or to forgive one another when you could just leave the person. But if you're committed, and there's a problem, means, well, we got to work through this. I've got to be patient. I've got to be gentle. I've got to be forgiving. As a matter of fact, the closest thing we have to all of these one another's, the closest thing that we have in our culture is this, wedding vows. in which the husband and wife pledged to be these things to one another. That's what the church most closely resembles. Once again, is that what the church is to you? Is that how you think of church? Are you, are, are you so interconnected with the lives of the people here that you would be missed? There would be a gaping hole in their life if you were absent. And if I could speak really direct here. I, I don't know if there's ever been a generation that has talked more about wanting to wanting community and has sacrificed for it less. That's all you ever hear is I want to be a part of a community, I need to be part of a community. I do this but then you look at it, your entire life is being built and all you do is put yourself in isolation. Community comes at a sacrifice. You do actually have to give up other things in order to give yourself to a community. But what I consistently hear is things like this. You know, if it's whether it's sports or whatever, it's like, well, I got to be there because I don't want to let down my team. I don't want to let down my coworkers. I don't want to let down all these people, all these other things you've given yourself to. But what about the church? I'm talking about far more than just attending on a Sunday. That's preaching to the choir here, all right? Are you giving yourself to the church because Christ literally gave his blood for this gift to you to be a part of? Do you see the church as that glorious? The blood of Jesus is the mortar, if you will, that links our lives together. And I would just ask, are you taking advantage of that? We remind ourselves of this at this table. We remind ourselves of the broken body and the blood of Jesus, the price that was necessary to give us this glorious gift of the church, to make us into a new race, to make us into a house where God dwells, and not only that, but to make us a place where God actually dwells in us. Pray with me. Our Father, we come to this table here so thankful for this glorious gift of the church. And I pray, Lord, that through your spirit, you would press into us just the beauty of this gift. That we would treasure this gift. We would take full advantage of what you have given us the very cost of your son, Jesus. We remember him in this moment, and we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.